hello, everyone. Uh, welcome back to episode seven, or class seven of our MHU class the, on the historicity of the Gospels. Um, before we jump into our passage today, uh, I was just going to uh, cover a couple of review things from uh, earlier in the class, just to make sure we're all on the same page. Um, so my first question is, why are we doing this? Uh, yeah, I mean, one reason we're doing this is just to have a reference for people. I mean, it's part of why we're recording it, is so when people have these questions, they can be referenced to it. But why, why is a study in general so important? Yeah, so it matters if the Gospels are true or not. Uh, if we are to subscribe to the Christian faith, then the foundation of that faith is something we want to... Uh, be justified in believing, and so we want to look at the evidence for that and make sure, as best as we can tell, it uh, is historically reliable. What are some of the mistakes people make when they come to these kind of ancient documents? Yeah, so people have a habit of just picking picking verses out and saying, oh, I don't like that, or, or this doesn't make sense, without actually looking at the whole context. Um, it's a really common problem. I think even as, as Christians, we fall into that. Um, but that's definitely definitely something to keep in mind as we're approaching the text, is to look at the whole context and understand why, why the events are happening and why those events are included uh, in the narrative. What are some other mistakes that we might make, especially as modern, modern readers? Yeah, so we come to the text with a certain ideal of what history is supposed to be like. Um, people will, will reference the, the ideal chronicler, right? Somebody who isn't actually invested in the history. They're just taking note of all the facts and leaving it for us to interpret. Um, but both we know in general, that's not how history is actually written. Um, but especially when we go back to ancient documents, we see that um, people were you know, always had a, a specific reason for, for recording these things. And when we look at not just the, the literary context, <clears throat> like we were talking a moment ago, but the historical context of the actual genre and how this type of writing happened in that time, um, we should expect to see the kinds of variations that we see in the text because people weren't trying to give the most systematic journalistic accounts possible. Um, they were doing their best to record uh, the facts as they saw them, but they were also doing it for a specific theological purpose. Um, so I think that's, that's an important thing to keep in mind, especially as you look across four different accounts of the same, some of the same stories. Yeah, so Patrick brought up two similar or complementary errors that we can make when we approach the text uh, that affect how we think about and interpret and what we expect from the text. One is something, an error that Christians often make, um, and then one would be an error that non-Christians approaching the text make. And for Christians, um, this, because we think the text is inspired by God, um, and that in and of itself is a, something we haven't really addressed so much in this class, but... Uh, without getting into details, um, people have generally talked about that with the idea of conf confluence, uh, which is basically two, two people working together, one of those persons being God and one of those persons being the, the human author. And somehow, uh, whether God is doing that on the front end or exactly how that's working, we're, we're not, there are different, different theories on that, but we believe that God is sort of co-authoring this text with human authors. 
Um, and the mistake Christians can often make is by treating the whole Bible as just one single book, uh, all inspired by God. And often, in, in a way, we think about it as almost like a dictation, something similar to the Quran or, or the Book of Mormon or something where it just kind of fell out of the sky. And so we don't take into account that each of these books in the Bible, of the, the 66 books, that there are different authors involved with those different books and that they are writing from their perspective in a specific time, uh, in a specific historical context, and they're writing to a specific audience. And so we still have to take into account a lot of the general, general literary uh, factors that we take into account when we read any text, um, even though at the same time we, we are taking into account that we do believe God is, is inspiring this, and that's going to affect how we view all of the books together as we look at themes across the books and the consistency across Scripture as a whole. Uh, the other error would just be the flip side of that, of treating the text uh, as an entirely human document. Um, and so if you think, well, these are just people writing down their experiences of God in this kind of Feuerbach psychological perspective where people are just writing about the things they've experienced. And then, of course, you're going to expect to see all kinds of errors and disagreements, and, and you're not going to even take the time to try to see if those things can be harmonized or how they work out. Um, because the assumption is this is just a bunch of people and people are, you know, limited and flawed. And so why should we take any of it seriously? So as Christians, we want to avoid both of those things. We want to both honor the fact that God works with people and through people to produce his word and to do things in the world. Um, but also that God has had his hand in this. And so, uh, we, we see, uh, a unity, uh, across scripture as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. Patrick has a, a good point that the Bible, uh, is not a magic book. <laughs> and, um, this is something you, you see actually in, in recent biblical studies, uh, as people kind of moved away from the historical reconstructions, trying to get back to the historical Jesus and things like that. People try to reconstruct the text or try to figure out what the original oral, uh, scripture was that was passed down. And so they go through and they break it all apart and, uh, Boltman is kind of the, the famous example of this and his rearranging all of the book of John into what he thought was the original text in the original order and it's splitting up mid-sentences and it's this kind of <laughs> crazy reconstruction of the book of John that he thinks is the original book and finally scholars realize that this is, we're just making all this up. <laughs> we're, we're just, we don't have those, all we have is the documents as we have them, you know, with minor variations, but pretty much exactly what we have is what we have. We don't know whatever these speculations were. And so we should stop trying to speculate. And so even in uh, secular biblical studies, uh, people have shifted towards more of a narrative or literary criticism where they just treat it as another book. So, you know, they might not think of it as being written by God, but like, how would I treat this if it was written by, you know, any other ancient author? Like, what if uh, Homer wrote this. How, how would I, how would I treat this text? Right. And so they're, they're looking at it in that, from that standpoint. Um, and we can actually borrow a lot from more recent literary and narrative criticism because it does treat the text as a unity. Uh, so a couple, let's see, a couple of things. Like you said, each, each one of the gospel writers is, uh, telling, trying to tell us a specific story about, about Jesus. And so we got to keep in mind, each one has a different audience and that, to some degree, they're doing something different with their texts. So uh, some general guesses is that Matthew, uh, we're pretty sure, is writing to Jews. 
And so we see a lot of historical references throughout uh, of the Old Testament, a lot of uh, almost playing out of the life of Moses uh, we see in Jesus's life. And so we, you get this part of the narrative is Jesus being identified with Moses. Um, and, and so we can pick out those Jewish elements throughout the book of Matthew and kind of understand why he highlighted some of the things that he chose to include. Uh, Mark, we think, ended up in Rome. Um, if Mark is hanging out with Paul, for various reasons, he, he goes to, to Rome when Paul is in prison there at the end of Paul's life. And so we think Mark wrote to the Romans at the time, um, the earliest, earliest gospel. Luke is uh, presumably the only one of the authors that actually is a Gentile. In the introduction, he, he dedicates his, his writings to Theophilus, which is a very Greek name. So we're assuming he's a Gentile writing to other Gentiles. And so uh, you're going to see a different way of interacting with the Jewish history because he's going to assume that a lot of his uh, audience doesn't know the Jewish history. Um, interestingly with John, um, the church history suggests John was probably in Ephesus at the time. Um, but you see an interesting mix of the inclusion of very specific Jewish references and things that are consistent with stuff in Dead Sea Scrolls and uh, other things from the, the first century Palestine. So that clearly is, it seemed like it was written by somebody from the area, right? Um, so his inclusion of things like I am statements, right, which are very uh, meaningful to a Jewish audience or, or from a Jewish perspective, but wouldn't be that meaningful in a Greek context. Uh, but you also see him giving a lot of little uh, parentheses or little asides throughout his text, explaining the meaning of words, explaining locations. So you also get the, the feel that there are clearly non-Jewish or people who are unfamiliar with the region who are, who are reading his book. So you get a little bit of, of both in there. Um, yeah, so I think just to kind of sum up the, the counter, as we've been looking at these two different perspectives, uh, this is a, a quote from Bart Ehrman, who sort of represents the, the non-historical or non-historically reliable view. And he says, these authors were not eyewitnesses. They lived in different countries from Jesus. They spoke a different language from Jesus. They did not have extensive written documentation from those who were eyewitnesses to Jesus because there was no documentation. So if that was the case, these, they, they're not eyewitnesses, they live in different countries, they don't speak the same language, they don't have any written sources to rely on, so therefore, it seems to be assuming their sources are unreliable. What, sh what kinds of things should we expect to see across the Gospels if that were the case, if that, if that hypothesis were true, as we're looking at this evidence? Yeah, so geography is a huge part of it. There's a lot of really specific geographical details throughout the Gospels um, that if somebody's, you know, halfway across the Roman Empire and they're just making that stuff up, there's a lot of details that they would probably get wrong. We should expect to see a lot of uh, geographic mistakes throughout the text. Yeah, so we've got all these changing historical, uh, the changes in power, so between the various Herods, between uh, Quirinius, that comes in later, we've got Pilate, who's there. You're working with uh, Greek and Latin and Aramaic and some Hebrew. And so we're talking about all these different town names and cities and regions. Uh, there are a lot of errors that could be made, both in the chronology as we think about who was in charge and what kind of social movements were happening at the time, uh, but then how each of those districts is going to shift with 
who's in charge is going to change the names of places and who owns what and all of that is going to change pretty significantly, pretty quickly. So this is written quite a bit later or written by people who don't have access to those uh, to that exact time. We should see a lot of those things uh, being, or a lot of mistakes being made in that area as well. All right, so those are some of the things uh, to keep in mind as we are looking at evidence and asking, okay, we have this hypothesis. Uh, does the evidence seem to suggest these people don't know the area, they don't have good sources, they don't, they're, they're far removed linguistically, geographically, culturally, um, that's what we should expect to see. Um, is that the case? Or do the accounts, as much as possible, seem to fit the, the geographic details, the language stuff that we would expect, um, the cultural phenomena? Do, do, is, that all, is that consistent as we look at this? Um, another couple suggestions, or one of the other suggestions, is if this is being written later, and probably being written to deal with problems in the church, right? Maybe they're writing these gospels to say, oh, we've got these conflicts in the church and we're going to record all this stuff. Um, what we should expect to see is Jesus settling the kinds of issues that were problems at the time of their writing, right? So if they're writing this, say they're writing 20 years later, 30 years later, and we can see some issues coming from Paul's letters, Right? We've got issues with, should people be circumcised or not? Or should they speak in tongues or not? Or when or how? And, and there's all these uh, church polity issues. How, yeah, how, the, how does the inclusion of Gentiles work? Gentiles are barely even mentioned <laughs> in the four Gospels. Right? There's, almost ve there's very little interaction with Gentiles. Um, so, in, but we don't actually see Jesus address a lot, which is part of why we would say they, are, they were issues later. Because they weren't addressed. Jesus didn't address how to interact in these ways and how the church was meant to be run in these specific ways. And so people like Paul are trying to figure that out. You think it'd be really easy for Mark, who's hanging out with Paul, to include, well, Jesus said, you know, everybody should do this, right? And solve the problem right there. Look, Jesus said it. Um, but we don't actually see Jesus addressing most of those issues from that time, which would be uh, poor planning if you were making this up uh, as a useful document to help, help you run the church later on. Okay. Um, in contrast to that, uh, I don't know if we've suggested this before, but some of our earliest, I think we have, our earliest evidence that we have for, for Jesus, for what people thought about Jesus, uh, his, his divinity, things like that, come from some of the seeming hymns or creeds in some of Paul's letters, which are pretty much all agreed to be very, very early. Um, and so those are kind of our, our earliest glimpses into Christian theology. And so part of what we want to see is, do, on the other side, is do the Gospels fit that portrayal of Jesus? Um, that we see the very high, exalted view of Jesus that we see, or is that something that's been legendarized, something that's been sort of attributed to him later, that he has this divine quality? Um, or do, is that consistent across what we see in the Gospels? we see in the early kind of creeds and hymns that have shown up around that time. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to do a little reminder about the kinds of things we're looking at, just because it's been like nine or ten weeks now uh, since we first started. Um, so we have evidence that we're looking at 
for and against uh, the hypothesis that the Gospels are historically reliable, which is the view that we take. Uh, so just going to mention a couple of the ones on either side. So some of our important ones, we have the external evidence. So this is direct confirmation from external sources. So that can be geographic details. That could be uh, other documents from the time. We've got historians like Josephus or Pliny or other people who we don't expect to be uh, writing favorably on behalf of the Christians, and yet they seem to affirm certain details uh, that we see in the Gospels. So that's external evidence. Uh, that's direct confirmation from external evidence. Indirect confirmation is confirmation for maybe cultural things, practices, things that we know about the region that just affirm the general kind of milieu of what's going on in the Gospels. Yeah, the, the first century Palestine was like that uh, and seems to affirm the overall story that we see. Um, Undesigned coincidences, so these are especially cool. Uh, this is when we see details across uh, the various texts. So we've got uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and especially when we have different sources. So when sources where Matthew and Luke aren't, don't seem to be directly borrowing from Mark, uh, and yet we seem to have these little details that are passed across them um, that don't look like they were meant to be there. Um, so those are pretty cool. We'll look at one of those tonight. Uh, coherence is looking at just do, do the, does it fit across the, the picture of Jesus that we see, the details that we see, do they fit across the, within a, within a document? Um, multiple attestation is just the same event or same details being affirmed across the different independent sources. Criterion of embarrassment is one that, uh, comes up quite a lot, which is, there are a lot of really weird things in the Gospels. We're like, why the heck did they include that, right? If you're trying to tell somebody about this great new world leader who's the savior of humanity and all this stuff, why would you include that weird story or those details, right? A lot of them are, are embarrassing or they're weird. Um, they don't fit the context, and, and often we'll see the people in the story responding as if this is weird, right? We're not, we're not the only ones that think this is an odd occurrence. Um, and that, again, if you're making up a story to make this guy, Jesus, look really good, you're not going to include those kinds of things. Um, so those uh, tend to be evidence for the, the hypothesis that these are historical events that have actually happened the way that they are said to have happened. Uh, against, you get the inverse of those things, so direct conflicts from external sources, uh, indirect conflicts from external sources, so things just don't fit what else we know from that time. Uh, discrepancies are things uh, either within a single document or across the four Gospels who, that don't seem to agree. So they put something at a different place or a different time, did a different chronological sequence. Uh, failure of coherence. The things that don't fit the picture, like the, the cohesive picture of who Jesus is or what, the, what he's doing, that kind of thing. Uh, silence or omission. So, hey, this really important event happened. Every, you know, everybody else seems to care. Why did the Gospels not mention it? Uh, and then the claim that things are theological inventions. So this is kind of fitting the, uh, the Gospel writers are adding in, you know. So depending on your view, you're probably just going to say all the miracles are theological inventions because you don't believe in miracles. Uh, and that's already, you know, that's a, a presupposition that's going to be problematic throughout. So, all right. So let's jump into our, our text. 
Um, we've got Matthew 14, 13 through 26, Mark 5 and 6, and Luke 9, uh, 10 to 17. And so uh, we're looking at a few different events here, mostly looking at the feeding of the 5,000. So it's a pretty, pretty cool event in the life of Jesus. Uh, so Matthew, uh, looking at Matthew, if you want to open up to 14. Uh, so we see that we get disturbed on the Baptist being buried. Um, then we get Jesus is withdrawing by boat to a, a desolate place. And but people are following him on foot and they're coming after him. And the Bible tells us that, uh, or Matthew tells us that he fed 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish. So obviously it's a miraculous account. Uh, so let's see if that all seems to make sense. Um, so we've got some kind of question, different questions, historical questions about the loaves and the fish, uh, some of the things in the story, the details in the story, uh, were there actually 5,000 people? Where was this taking place? Um, so a couple things that come up. Uh, first, we just have the fact that this is attested to both in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, which Matthew and Luke uh, might be borrowing from Mark, but there are actually a lot of other details included in Matthew and Luke that aren't in Mark. So that would suggest that they potentially had other sources for this same event. Um, additionally, we have John, which we know is very, or definitely independent, um, and he tells us the same story. Um, so this gives us very good evidence of multiple attestation across the four Gospels. Um, one of the uh, undesigned coincidence, coincidences that we have here, the, uh, the coherence, is that we have two accounts of the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. Now, there's a, a thing that... that um, Scholars talk about the idea of a doublet. So this is the idea that it was really just one event, and uh, it got written down twice, or because of, or because of oral culture, it was circulating, and some details got changed, and all of a sudden it became two stories. Now this thing happened twice, but somebody forgot how many fish it was, and it ended up with being 4,000 people instead of 5,000. And so really it was one event, but you have two different accounts of this one event. Um, however... One of the things that uh, we notice here, as Elena has pointed out, is that there are two different uh, Greek words used for basket. And it's consistent across the story of the 5,000 and in the story of the 4,000. Um, so in the story of 4,000, that word is spuridas. Uh, and in the feeding of the 5,000, it is kofinus. So we have... Spuridas uh, and Kafinus. Um, I can't tell you exactly what the difference between those two types of baskets were off the top of my head because uh, I didn't look that up. Um, but the fact that we see in both accounts of the 4,000, we have the word Spuridas, and in the other accounts of the 5,000, we have consistently this word Kafinus. Um, you think we'd be more likely to see those things getting mixed up if they're the same story or the same event. Um, so that gives us a little bit of evidence towards these actually being two separate and distinct events. Yeah, no. cl some clarification on baskets here. Okay, cool. So we've got two different styles of baskets, um, which might explain a difference in location. Um, 
I don't know. That'd be something interesting to look up. But there might be some other. Maybe someone someone has devoted their life to solving this problem. I'm sure. Uh, so the feeding of the four thousand is suggested to possibly taken place in a Gentile territory, um, which is why that is just a common Greek word for basket. Whereas the coffiness uh, or the cough, what's the singular? Coffin. Oh, coffin nose. Okay. Uh, the coffin nose. Uh, the nominative form there uh, is was taking place in a Jewish territory, and that seems to have been a Jewish word for basket. Yeah, I don't. I don't know what the evidence for the. Uh, yeah, actually, them moving around in the geography, yeah. but that would be a cool undesigned coincidence uh, oh. if the words specifically associate with the geographic region. Okay, uh, so 5,000 people is a lot, and this is just 5,000 men uh, as opposed to women and children. So probably at least two or three times that number. Um, that's quite the crowd. So, yeah, uh, what's going on here? There's some different, different suggestions. Um, we have this happening, let's see, across... So all four sources are telling us that 5,000 people got fed, uh, including John, um, which, as I suggested, is the most independent of our sources. Um, Mark and Luke both tell us that the group sat down in 50 and 100. So we have them sitting down in specific quantities. Uh, Luke is probably getting this from Mark, uh, potentially. But John does not mention the groups of 50, or 100, but he just says that the men sat down. Um, so this would suggest that the men are sitting down in order to be counted and have the food distributed uh, while the women and children are not. Uh, someone here has suggested that maybe the women were just chasing the children around, uh, keeping them from falling into the ocean or something like that, into the Sea of Galilee. So chasing after a little Benjamin, keeping him from falling into the Sea of Galilee. That's one uh, piece of evidence. Um, yeah, so that's an undesigned coincidence between John and between Mark and Luke. Because John tells us the men are sitting down, Mark and Luke tells us that uh, they're in groups of 50 and 100. Yeah, so they're not just making up this number, right? Like, hey, that looks like a lot of people. I'm not going to take time to count them all. Roughly. Yeah, that looks like, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, what, like 15,000 or 20,000? I don't know, whatever number that would have ended up being. Uh, they, if they actually had the men all sit down, they would know exactly how many men there were. So if you have them sit down in 50s and 100s, I don't know if you've ever, like, needed to count up a lot of small change or something. You, like, group them in larger quantities, and then you don't have to remember, like, penny number 355. Like, you just group them in tens or something, but yeah, so, so factoring, uh, so basically counting by tens, right, and hundreds, and yeah, so that would have been the most efficient way to do this, if you were going to count thousands of people, be like, hey, organize yourselves, and then we'll come around and count clumps instead of individual heads. Vermes suggests the number in this pericope are exaggerated, Pointing out numbers are often exaggerated in ancient Jewish writing. Fair. Suggests that the 50s and 100s in Mark 640 are formulaic, but he's forced to hypothesize that Luke, being a Gentile, takes the numbers seriously because he says about 50. So <clears throat> this is some 
Okay, so this is potentially an argument for the untrustworthy view, uh, which would be that Jewish people often exaggerated things in writings. Um, a lot of this is going back to the Old Testament. So uh, it's a common thing in the Old Testament. The, the Hebrew word translated a thousand, elif, can mean other things, but we usually translate a thousand, and so you end up with things like the army of 50,000 men. Um, and then historians are like, there's no way there were that many millions of people in this small geographic region at this time with semi-nomadic people living in villages. Like, there weren't 20 million people. It just doesn't make sense. So there are other ways of interpreting that. So sometimes you could say that's just an exaggeration. Uh, some scholars will say LF can mean like a, a platoon or a unit. Um, and so when it's like 50 LFs, it doesn't mean 50,000. It means like 15 of these little kind of tribal fighting platoons. And that's actually 15 people or something or 20 people. And then you end up with much, much smaller numbers that seem to make more sense geographically and like his, historically. Um, but anyway, there are, there are different ways of looking at whether or not the Jewish writers are exaggerating when or whether or not that's a sort of more of a mistranslation. Yeah, so it's just something suggested that anytime you see pretty much, you see a thousand in the Old Testament, it's usually this word LF, which is just, an, it's just a number of thousand, but it does get used in other ways to mean other things. Um, and that's been a critique of ancient Jewish archaeology and stuff like that, is that you'll get these numbers in the Bible that seem to suggest there were millions and millions of Israelites crossing the desert. Um, which, you know, I mean, some Christians will say, yeah, it's God is doing miraculous things, and sure, he could sustain millions of Israelites wandering through the desert. Um, but people archaeologically are like, well, we should expect to see more evidence of that sort of thing if there were that kind of quantity of people um, so some scholars will say, actually, LF uh, means something more along the lines of, of yeah, like a, a platoon or a troop or something like that, which would have been a much smaller number. And so when you have, now when you have these battles, you actually have, you know, maybe a couple thousand or something instead of 50,000 or 20,000, which just seems a lot con considering how many people would have actually been there at the time that we can tell uh, from the archaeology. Are they exaggerating here? Does it make sense? So one uh, response to the reason of how there could be that many people there uh, is this would have been happening around the time of Passover. Um, you see this is in Luke's Gospel. Also, if it's Passover, you have thousands of Jews making their way to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. So it makes sense you'd have thousands of people wandering through the countryside, whereas otherwise, it's, why would you have thousands of people hanging out by the Sea of Galilee, not next to any major towns or anything. Well, that makes sense if you're on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem or on your way back, depending on exactly when it when that happened. Oh, Mark's gospel. He mentions about the grass being green. Yeah. So, yeah. So John tells us around the time of Passover. Mark tells us the grass is green, um, which fits that season. Yeah. So my father and mother-in-law were in Jerusalem. Jerusalem and, well, I guess all over Israel, uh, in, it was March or April. I can't remember which one it was. Uh, and they said, yeah, it was, it was a really cool time to be there because they were supposed to go in November and it got postponed and they ended up there in, in the spring. And said everything was just green. Just everything was like vibrant and 
just bright, verdant hillsides and the Sea of Galilee is like everything's flourishing. Um, so that was really cool because if they had gone in November or really any other time of year, it would have been pretty brown. So, so that was pretty cool. Um, so Mark also mentions that people are coming and going. So they're sort of in this migratory thing is happening uh, and it's green, which both fit John's uh, comment that it's Passover. So we've got an undesigned coincidence between Mark and John about this event. Yeah, okay. So so Matthew, in Matthew, Jesus passes woes on Bethsaida and Chorazin, uh, saying they're going to be worse off than Tyre and Sidon, who would have repented if he had done the great things he had done there instead. Uh, but Matthew doesn't mention Jesus doing any great things in uh, Chorazin or in Bethsaida. So what is Jesus talking about? Well, we have one uh, possible coincidence, undesigned coincidence, which is in Luke. He says that the feeding of the 5,000 takes place near Bethsaida. So, considering I'm sure lots of people were coming out into the countryside to see Jesus, which we they seem to have done all over, uh, probably lots of people from Bethsaida were there and would have witnessed this event, and clearly they didn't respond very well, <laughs> Matthew tells us. So, um, yeah, I mean, we do see... Actually, John, too, the way people respond to the feeding of the 5,000, and John, like, they feed him, he feeds them, and then they come back, and he's like, you guys just want food, you're just hungry, and you're missing the whole point. And then he tells them some crazy stuff, and they leave. They're like, dude, you're crazy, and they leave. So that fits Matthew's account of Bethsaida not repenting and not, like, responding well to Jesus' message. So you've got sort of three different things that uh, that fit around the feeding of the 5,000, around Bethsaida, this miracle happening, them not responding. Um, but those details are only across, across those different sources, not in one of them directly. Um, and Justin has also pointed out that in Chorazin, we don't have any, any additional things describing miracles of Chorazin, which could be evidence against that. Um, because, well, there's no evidence that something happened, you know, maybe some omission or something. But because we do have evidence that stuff actually did happen in Bethsaida, this probably suggests that they probably just left that out because there were all sorts of stories to tell and that one didn't seem as important for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah. So not, not only is it implausible that we have the Bethsaida thing in Matthew and in separately the reference to the feeding of 5,000 in Luke, that it'd be implausible that that would be made up because... They clearly didn't seem to make the connection themselves. Uh, but if you were going to make that up, why would you not make one up for both cities? If their whole point was, oh, I need to make this fit. I need to make up something that happened near Bethsaida. Hey, the feeding of 5,000. We'll say that happened there. Why would you not also do the same for Corson? Um, otherwise, you just leave that out, and it looks like you didn't include it, which they didn't. Okay. A um, couple other events to look at here. Any any. More thoughts or questions on the feeding of the 5,000? Okay. So after that, um, this is, I guess we're still following along with Matthew. Uh, they've, they're out in the water. Uh, they've, they've set out. And it's the fourth watch of the night. So coming up towards morning, I guess. Anyway, <laughs> it's getting, it's, get, it's like, you know, early morning kind of thing, probably. Uh, Jesus 
walking on the water is attested uh, in the synoptics and independently in John. So crazy thing happens. They're out sailing in the, uh, on the Sea of Galilee, and all of a sudden, this person is walking across the water towards them, and they freak out, because who wouldn't? Uh, and um, But we see this both in Mark and Matthew, um, but also in John, which, like I said, John records a lot of different events and different sayings, and so when you see something both in the synoptics and in John, uh, that's really good evidence uh, for that event happening. Um, Obviously, again, with any of these miraculous events, if you outright think that's impossible, well, you're going to find that hard to believe, but uh, if you're willing to to accept uh, some of the other claims across the Gospels, then this seems like actually a pretty reasonable thing to happen. Um, my personal opinion is that it was just the most convenient way to get across the sea at the time, and Jesus was taking a shortcut. But uh, We have an undesigned coincidence in John. So uh, Blunt suggests that the direction of the storm's wind, which is indicated in Matthew 14, uh, explains why when John reports that several fishing vessels arrived in a deserted area near Bethsaida, where the feeding of the 5,000 had occurred, uh, which also explains the puzzlement of the crowds as to how Jesus reaches Capernaum. So Jesus shows up in the side, and the crowds are like, how did you get here? Like, <laughs> when did you get over here? How did this happen? Um, so we have uh, Matthew telling us about the storm, and we have John telling us about them arriving, and the storm could make sense of how they got to where they ended up. Uh, as quickly as they did, and ended up in Bethsaida, as opposed to Capernaum. Yeah, so we've had the comment that in the story about Jesus walking across the water, uh, Peter, being his brash self, his his bratty self, his his brash self, uh, asked Jesus if he can come out of the water with him. Which is pretty crazy, right? I mean, it's like not great weather, and it's out in the middle of the water, and from what we know culturally, Jews don't really like the water. I mean, Peter's a fisherman, so he's pretty used to it, but it like, I don't know, there's always all these things and connotations of, of chaos and fear and all these things associated with water, and, and so Peter's like, I'm just going to come walk out of the water with you. So the fact that he did that, uh, fits the rest of what we see of Peter, right? Like, if it was one of the, you know, if it was, uh, you know, Doubting Thomas or something, we'd be like, I don't know, Thomas didn't seem like the guy to jump out of the boat, but Peter seems like the guy to jump out of the boat. Yeah, yeah, so this would be, yeah, coherence uh, across the narrative of the characters seeming to fit and be consistent in their character. Okay. So, storm, Jesus walking in the water. Let's jump over to Mark. So this is one of our other other sections here to look at. And we've got some some uh, geographic things and some uh, potential uh, disagreements across the accounts. So we have the uh, Gerasene demoniac. So Mark chapter uh, what five beginning of five. So we're five one. Okay. Cool. The Gerasene demoniacs. This is a crazy story. Um, it's a guy who has some demons. And uh, 
when he's brought to Jesus, Jesus casts out, well, the demons ask if they can go into some pigs. Jesus casts out the demons, and they go into some pigs, and the pigs run off a cliffside into the water. <clears throat> okay, so it takes, so we know it's taking place in Decapolis. I think it says that, which doesn't really tell us much, because that's a really broad region. Um, so first off, we have this pericope is a paralleled in the synoptics, so it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, but we get some different manuscript evidence for different locations. So uh, we have uh, Gadara, which is right here. This is contestant uh, number one. And then we have Garasa, which is over here. And north of Hippus is Gerdisa. All right, so we have different manuscript evidence uh, for these three different towns. The problem is even though the Garasa and Gadara are better attested in the manuscript evidence, uh, what you could see if you were to look up a map of Decapolis, or especially the Sea of Galilee region, you would see that Gadara and Garasa are nowhere near the Sea of Galilee. I mean, they're roughly near it in that they're north in Israel, but they're miles away from the Sea of Galilee. And we don't imagine that the pigs ran a marathon after, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. But it seems like from the story, they jumped right in the water pretty close by. So we need a better location, one that is in pretty good proximity to the Sea of Galilee, if we're going to make sense of this story. So the third place mentioned uh, is Gergisa. And this one is along here, but it's less well attested to. One person suggested that because Gerasa, which is the best variant that we have, it is the most consistent across the manuscripts, um, if the name was originally given in Aramaic, it would sound very similar to the name of Kursa, which is a name of a location within Gergisa, which is the town of our three options that is actually on the Sea of Galilee, just below Hippos. So if it's across in the Sea of Galilee, uh, and what we know is there's actually a steep bank there, uh, which is what Mark tells us in verse 1, and that there are even tombs nearby. So this external indirect evidence suggests that uh, if it were in Kirsa, and it was, this is in the region of, of uh, Gergesa, then, we, then it makes sense with both the steep bank and the tombs uh, and being right next to the water. Uh, so the, this would probably be something that would happen just from a copyist, copying down you know, one manuscript after another, uh, and either you know, they hear something different or they're, they don't recognize the name of the place and they think, oh, oh, here's another town that's near, you know, and they try to fix it or something, and so we get this copy error that results in a different, some different names. To, if that is the case, it seems to fit all the archaeological evidence. Uh, some other stuff that I found about this is that uh, actually some Byzantine monks uh, thought that this was the site. So they uh, actually built a, a, a monastery there uh, because they wanted to have somewhere on the, on the location of the miracle. So a few kilometers north of Hippos, uh, on the shore of the lake, they built this monastery. And it fits this, look, this description of having a steep bank 
Um, you can actually still go see the remains of the monastery in the Kersey National Park today. So, you know, if you're ever trekking along the Sea of Galilee and you're a little north of Hippos, go see the monastery at Kersey or whatever's left of it. Which is, is one of those things that, it, it, you know, it's hard for us archaeologically today to confirm some of those things. But, you know, we see fairly early in the early church, people are building churches on these sites and on these locations that they had passed down. This is exactly where this thing happened. You know, this is where Jesus did this cool thing where the tree withered or this, you know, like little details have been passed down. Once people were like, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. Like, remember when he did that thing there? And so they sort of passed down a lot of these details. And so, you know, not that they're the kind of things that would necessarily be considered reliable by a lot of historians. Some of them uh, would be. Yeah, okay. So, like, Peter's house, which would be a pretty big deal, right? He's, like, head of the church and all of that, one of the early apostles. And uh, they found a church on top of a house that was expanded from a smaller house. That makes sense. The church would have done that when they figured out, hey, this is, or well, probably immediately they would have known from day one, like, hey, let's go back to Peter's house because his mom's hanging out there and, you know, we're all friends. So they probably pretty, was probably always like a special site. Um, one, I'm sure it was some place Jesus spent a lot of time. Well, that's cool. I don't know if this we're going to get to that later, but uh, another tradition slash archaeological coincidence uh, was when Constantine took over and became the cool Christian emperor uh, and all of that. His mother went looking for Jesus's tomb and was told, yeah, it's right here, but there's this pagan temple built on top of it. And being now the mother of the emperor was like, tear that thing down. And they built a church on top of it, which is the church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, and they built it on top of it. But when they tore down the temple, they actually did find a tomb there. Um, it was, it doesn't seem to fit the text initially because this tomb is within the walls of the city. And we know from the text that this happened outside the walls of the city. But uh, at some point, they had actually expanded the walls of the city so that the city was much larger uh, over the, the space that it covered than it had previously at the time of when Jesus would have actually been buried. So it both fits uh, the text. It could have been both within the walls later and outside the walls earlier, uh, and it seems to fit what tradition suggests of the location. Very cool. Okay, so we've established some location details between uh, our different accounts, uh, as well as the early church seemed to pretty certain this is where this happened. Um, so and one... Uh, account against these two, uh, against the historical reliability, is that in Matthew, in Matthew, we have the mention of two demoniacs. In Mark and Luke, for both these parallel accounts, we only get one. Now, how do we work that out? Is there one person? Is there two people? Right? It seems like a con simple contradiction. Uh, well, there are lots of simple ways to sol solve this problem. Um, but uh, Blomberg suggests that it's natural to suggest that there really were two characters present the whole time, but one of them was acting as a sort of spokesperson for the two and was dominating the scene so that when people 
uh, were recording this down and telling the story. They just included the one that was talking the whole time and part of the dialogue and seemed important. Uh, whereas the other person sort of stayed in the background and seemed not important to include. Um, which, again, is just the sort of thing that is totally normal in eyewitness accounts. It happens all the time today. People tell about a story and they leave out the details that just didn't seem salient. Uh, where somebody else might have noticed, well, yeah, there were two people. And the other person was like, oh, okay, well, I just noticed the one guy was talking the whole time. The other guy didn't seem that important. I didn't, you know, didn't feel like that needed to be passed on. So this is just a totally normal thing we get with eyewitness testimony that different people have different things that seem salient to them, but could still be totally consistent across accounts. Uh, one other little thing that I included here was in Mark chapter 6, uh, Jesus' friends and family reject him. He's in Nazareth, and he can't perform any miracles in Nazareth. And this counts, I would say, as a criterion of embarrassment. I mean, this is a very family-oriented communal culture. There's a lot of association with shame around your family, bringing shame and dishonor on your family. So if somebody's family were, if, if his family and friends from his hometown were to reject him, not believe in him, um, that would seem like something really embarrassing. That's something really bad, right? We wouldn't want to, to highlight that fact. Um, but Mark seems to make kind of a big deal about this fact that Jesus isn't even performing miracles there because there's so little faith and because they, they don't respond to him. Um, so not only is this embarrassing, and included, but something that uh, Mark actually makes a pretty big point about. Any thoughts, questions, 